Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Larry Wilmore, and I am Black on the Air. That's what you're listening to, Larry Wilmore, Black on the Air. And I'm back on the air as well. And uh, I'm so excited, guys. First of all, thanks for uh, listening to this podcast. I really appreciate it. This is a very exciting day for me. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. And I want to thank, before I get started, I just want to thank all the supporters out there who people treat me all the time. Larry, we need you, Larry. When are you going to be back? And, uh, you know, I really appreciate that. You know, um, people are, have been very passionate about wanting to hear from me. And I felt what better way than to use this medium, the medium of the podcast. And um, people have been asking, what have I been up to and that sort of thing. And I'll fill you up on that. But, you know, um, before I, I, I mention that, I just want to give a lot of people who aren't familiar with me just a brief background on who I am. I've been both the performer and a writer-producer for a long time in this business, a lot longer than I care to admit sometimes. But I started my career as a stand-up comic, you know, as a performer. And I was kind of frustrated with uh, the way Hollywood was kind of um, paying attention to people that didn't fit in a certain mold, you know. And I decided that I wanted to write and produce television. This was like way back in the late 80s. But um, I had appeared on things like Star Search, if you can believe it, the early Star Search. It's so true. You can probably find that online. But please, please don't look at it. Just just be comfortable of knowing that it's there. You do not want to watch that. But um, I started writing for television because I wanted to be more in control of what I did and the product. I was inspired by people like Keenan Ivory Wayans and Robert Townsend and those kind of people, even Arsenio who had his own show at the time. And my first big break on TV was writing for In Living Color. And it was so much fun writing that type of material and really inspired the rest of my career. And I spent a long time working behind the scenes at that point. During the 90s, I worked for shows like Sister, Sister. (laughs) Remember that? Uh, Fresh Prince, yep. Even the Jamie Foxx show. And uh, then I decided I wanted to create shows, kind of uh, like the way I was inspired by Keenan and Robert. And the first show that I created, I co-created, it was called The, the uh, PJs with uh, Eddie Murphy. It was an animated show, took place in the projects. We had a crackhead on the show, which is very exciting uh, for those of you that remember it. And he had lines like, well, got to go, crack don't smoke it show. Um, I consider that one of the uh, seminal moments in television history, putting a crack on television. I'm very proud of that. But uh, that was really my big break in terms of being a uh, show creator doing the uh, PJs. And after that, I created a little show called The Bernie Mac Show, a show I'm very proud of with the late, great Bernie Mac, who was so brilliant. And I was able to win a lot of awards for that and kind of got put on the map as a as a show creator and that kind of thing. And I, um, I actually got fired from that show in the second season. And that's a tale I will tell you about one of these days. So out there in the podcastosphere, whatever it is, remind me about that. And I would love to tell that story about the Bernie Mac show. But it was a turning point in my career. And I wanted to get back into performing because the whole reason I started writing behind the scenes was to be able to write my own show and be in control of that. So the next part of my career was trying to figure that out. And in the meantime, I worked on shows like The Office with Greg Daniels. And um, I actually appeared on an episode of The Office as the diversity specialist, Mr. Brown, which some of you may remember, with Steve Carell. And it was so much fun. And it reminded me how much I love performing. And it was only a couple of years after that, I got on The Daily Show and became a senior black correspondent. And it was after that that eventually led to The Nightly Show. So that's kind of a short summation of my career, writing, producing, 
collaborating with other people. Uh, more recently, I co-created the show Insecure, which is on HBO, and helped launch Blackish a couple years ago with Kenya. And those are collaborations I'm really proud of. And um, that's kind of the person that I am. I like doing a lot of different things. I like being behind the scenes, and um, I love performing as well. But I've learned that if you want to have longevity in this business and you want to do something, you have to kind of take control of your own career. I feel that's very important. And the other thing that I found out about myself was that it's important uh, to find out who you are. I remember Bernie Mac gave me the best advice years ago. He said, Larry, let me tell you, man, be yourself. Be yourself. I'm like, what do you mean, Bernie? I don't know what the hell I mean. Just do it. <laughs> you know? But it's true, you know, and you're very, I think it's very fortunate if you can find out where you belong and who you are and then just do that, you know. So right now, this is where I am. I'm doing a podcast and my goal with this podcast is to have a conversation with people. So I'm going to have guests on the show, interesting guests, talking about interesting things. Sometimes we'll hit pop culture, politics, hot uh, cultural events. Maybe it's entertainment. Maybe it's some of my blurred stuff that I like. I've always been into science and that kind of thing. So you never know what we're going to get. And But I'll also be talking directly to you, the audience. And, and I want you to tell me the things that you'd love for me to talk about or address like if you have questions, just tweet me at Larry Wilmore and uh, let me know what you want to talk about. But I'll definitely weigh in on what's going on in such a crazy world right now as best as I can. And, you know, we'll have some fun in, at the same time. So I'm really looking forward to that. So anyhow, um, we have some great guests coming up too: Bernie Sanders, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I'm looking forward to. But my first guest is Norman Lear, and we're going to be talking to him very shortly. Anyhow, what's going on right now? Let's catch up a little bit. God, what the hell is going on with this administration, guys? You know, it's funny. When I don't have to do a show every day, I only catch the news uh, like now and then. And my brain just explodes when I see these stories, you know, with Trump, who, of course, I had called the orange Julius Caesar. He completely is a narcissistic sociopath. I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. You know, it doesn't matter. You have to admit that he is a narcissistic sociopath. He is as much sociopathic as he is narcissistic. I don't know which one is bigger. I just know that the way that they work in conjunction with Trump is not very good. And this whole Comey thing, the firing of Comey, it's very troubling to me. This, uh, it, I feel it is completely an obstruction of justice. A lot of people are comparing it to Nixon's firing of uh, Archibald Cox. He was the independent prosecutor for Watergate. Now, I am not going to draw a comparison between Trump and Cox, uh, I think Stephen Colbert already got in trouble for making that analogy. Thank you very much, folks. But here's the thing. I love, this is fantastic, the Nixon Library. I don't know if you guys saw this. The Nixon Library actually tweeted to distance Nixon from Trump, saying that Nixon wasn't that bad, you know, that he didn't uh, fire the head of the FBI. This is like Nixon talking from the grave saying, hey, I was an asshole, but I'm not Trump, motherfuckers. (laughs) I mean, how awesome is that? Part of me feels that Trump, I believe, uh, both doesn't know what he's doing and somehow is an evil Machiavellian at the same time. I don't know how that works out. I don't know if it's the people around him or guiding him and doing that sort of thing. But it seems clear to me that a lot of the things they do, because they're so reckless, I think they're to cover up the tracks from the last shitty thing that they just did. Like this Comey thing to me, absolutely is trying to distract people from forgetting about all the health care they're taking away from everybody. Come on. And, and actually, when you think about it, it's hard to even know if the obstruction of justice 
is trying to distract from the healthcare, or if the healthcare debacle is trying to distract from the obstruction of justice. It's just hard to know, you know. But it gives me why people are so surprised that Trump would be involved in an abuse of power. I, I'm actually shocked that people are shocked about this because to me, abuse, abuse is like Trump's jam. You know, that, that is his thing. Think about it. He's abusive on Twitter. He's abusive to the press, abusive towards women. I mean, he, Trump, he's even abusive when shaking people's hands. He can't even shake your hand without being abusive. Have you seen how he just draws you in when he's shaking your hand? I believe Trump is truly unstable. And I'm not just trying to be the, you know, the opposition. But this man isn't stable. Think about it. Trump actually believes that not only was Andrew Jackson alive during the Civil War, but that Frederick Douglass is still alive. This is crazy. I mean, I wish we were doing the nightly show still. If we were doing the nightly show, I would actually have Frederick Douglass on the show every night. And I would make sure that Trump would see it. And he'd probably believe it, you know. Oh, it's so amazing. I think the thing that gets me the most, though, the thing that is most dangerous about this whole situation is just the way that Trump is taking lying to a whole new level. And to me, it's not even big lies so much as the casual lying, which is the worst part of what he's doing. And then his minions, you know, we called uh, like Kellyanne Conway, Spokes Goblin, and some of these people. They just carry on the line. They don't even care, you know. And I hate it when people drew that comparison with Hillary and Trump. To me, and I've said this before, to me, Hillary lied like a politician, but Trump lies like an alcoholic. And I don't mean to offend any alcoholic. You know, in fact, better yet, he lies like a crackhead. He, <laughs> Trump lies exactly like a crackhead. He cannot stop himself from lying. And the crack that he's trying to get is basically just more attention. It's just all about Trump. That's the narcissism part. That's what's so sad about it. He just wants attention. I think he would destroy the entire world just to get more attention. But the dangerous part of this, and this is a little more serious for me, because the dangerous part of this casual lying, and especially the way that he's gone after the press, to me, it's a complete assault on the truth. And I talked about this when I was on Bill Maher not long ago, and I really am concerned about that. Because to me, that is the first step in an authoritarian regime that assault on the truth, where he doesn't want you to believe in anybody that is saying anything other than what he is presenting to us as his truth. That's the whole thing about the alternative facts. And he's doing all he can to pummel people's belief in institutions and the things that, you know, no matter what side you are on, that you can take reporters for what they're telling us, you know. And... To me, I feel like on this show and with what I'm doing and with what people are doing out there, I'm going to do all I can to prevent the mango Mussolini from becoming ripe. There you go. That's all I got to say. All right. Well, we're going to talk to Norman Lear. I'm very excited about this. And um, let's do that. But first, I think we got some business to take care of. Okay. We handled our business. And now (laughs) on to my conversation with Mr. Norman Lear. I am very honored to have on the show the legendary, the man responsible for such classics as All in the Family, Maud, One Day at a Time, which is still on the air. One Day at a Time, which is back on the air as a Latina family. Yes, and shows too numerous to mention, 
films, activism. He's the one and only Norman Lair. How you doing, Norman? If I had a complaint, I'd be an ingrate. <laughs> and I'm glad to be with you again, Larry. Yes. You know, it was such a joy meeting you. Uh, I think it was two years ago. It was before we launched uh-huh. the uh, nightly show. You were in New York and you stopped by and you said hi to us. We were all like, oh, my God, Norman Lear is oh here. Oh, my God, Norman Lear. No, it was so exciting. That's what my kids say every time I walk into a room. Really? Oh, my God, Norman Lear. <laughs> I said, oh, my God, Dad, you're still here? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're still here, I am. (laughs) That's what everybody's thinking. (laughs) I know. Well, that's interesting. I mean, you have seen so much, you know. Do you ever get preachy with your kids about things? My God, I hope the answer to that question is no. (laughs) I don't think so. I would wish not to be. Do your kids have an appreciation for who you are? How many kids do you have? I have six. Uh-huh. My children range, those six, from twins who are 21, yeah. soon to be 22, Very to uh, a 70-year-old. Wow. 22 to 70. You have fathered the century, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> and they're great. And the best yeah. thing I've got going in this life is yeah. that they all want to be together. Oh, that's nice. So come those times when we can be together, everybody yeah. loves it. That's fantastic. Um, here's what I want. I wanted to throw this at you. So there's a megalomaniac in the White House. Yes. Uh, the country feels divided. We see racism erupting on television, demonstrations happening all the time. Uh, we seem to be in a war that nobody can define that seems to go on forever. Uh, we're going through a cultural change that we've never seen before. And the country has seemed to lost all confidence in the institutions. And the president is a liar. I'm not talking about right now. I'm talking You're about, not talking about right no, now. I'm talking You're talking about, about 1971. Yes. Like, yes, that was the climate that you created all in the family. It's, it's eerie how it seems like it's today, you know. It feels like we're, we're having, we today. human of the species, a difficult time growing up. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. We're having cultural deja vu right now. But uh, television was so different back then, and you dared to put on a show that put all those issues on television. My question is, how the hell did you do that? How was that possible? Well, well, two things. (laughs) It was occasioned by two incidents in my life. I was being divorced, okay, living in New York, working on the Martha Ray show, and uh, a friend, Phil Sharp, was coming through. Uh Uh, He was being divorced with four children. Wow. I said, and I was having a really difficult time in my situation. I said, Phil, how's it going with you? He said, easy. All she wants was my Joan Davis reruns. Okay. He had done the Joan Davis, if you remember. She was a wonderful, wonderful comedian. My Joan Davis reruns. That's fantastic. And I had been doing nothing but live television Mm -hmm. uh, where we owned nothing. Yeah. And so I thought, I've got to do a situation comedy. Yeah, you needed you needed some money because you ha- you had some money to pay off. Yes, you had some checks to write. Within <laughs> days, I think yeah. days of uh, of that conversation, mm-hmm. my partner Bud Yorkin was in London doing a film. I was doing the Martha Ray show. He was doing a film. Sure. And he called and he told me about this show that he saw called. Uh, uh, oh, it's killing me that I can't remember it. <laughs> I got I got the rights to it mm-hmm. because I grew up with a father mm-hmm. who called me the laziest white kid he ever met. Really? And he, I and said, he specified white. The laziest white kid you ever met. I said, wow. you're putting down a, I'd fight with him. You're putting down a race of people to call me lazy. Yeah. And he said, uh, that's not what I'm doing. And you're the dumbest white kid I ever met. 
Wow. So that was an expression. of. I grew up with an Archie Bunker-ish kind of guy. So your dad was the inspiration for Archie. Uh, no, the guy that played the, uh, uh Till Death Us Do Part. That's okay. the title of the show. Till Death Do Us Part. That's right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. No, Till Death Us Do Part. Ah, got it. Yeah. And, uh, uh, he was the inspiration. My father was like him. I, that's why I felt comfortable writing him. Okay. Because I grew up with that. So the character it was based on had those characteristics, but you were able to relate to it because of your dad. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And who went, by the way, to prison when I was nine years old. Wow. You were nine and, years old and your dad was in prison. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh. How and long that, was he in prison? He was in prison for three years. Uh-huh. When he came out. Did he get all tatted up? When he came out, we were on a train <laughs> to New York where we, it turned out we were going to live, my mother, my sister, and I, and my father, uh-huh. with another couple who also had two kids uh-huh. in a small apartment. <laughs> and was uh, this while in New he York? looked for a job. Was this in New York? In New York, yeah. Uh-huh. Right. And, uh, but on the train, we met him in New Haven. Mm-hmm. On the train to New York, my father sitting with me said, uh, You're going to be by Misford next year. Uh-huh. Well, for your by Misford, I'm going to take you and your mother and your sister for a trip around the world. Yeah. We'll be gone six months. So that was my father. He was always going to have a million dollars in right. 10 days to two weeks. Was he kind of a dreamer then? Or? He was a, uh, the sharpest word I could, I have for him, I loved him so much, despite the fact that he never kept a promise, and, mm-hmm. and he broke the law, and, wow. uh, but he was a, a rascal is my favorite word Rascal. Yeah, he that's, was a rascal. That's the softening of it, I guess. Yeah, with the As soft as I can make it. Well, we have to, I think many times we, we put on rose-colored glasses to look at our family and our upbringing and that type of thing no matter how you know how rascally our parents can be whatever it gets us through you know what did america feel like to you growing up did you have a sense of what it felt like because it certainly has changed in your lifetime i think Um, i took i love the question because it allows me to think about civics class uh when my father went to prison Mm -hmm. There was a guy by the name of Father Coughlin. Father Coughlin? Coughlin. Yeah, on radio. Mm-hmm. He hated you because you're black. He hated me because I'm Jewish. Yeah. He hated uh, FDR because he was the New Deal. Wow. Uh, he was an all-round hater. And uh, he'd have scared the shit out of me, but for one thing. I was taking civics classes they taught civics in public schools, mm-hmm. and I knew that my in my America he was the bad guy. Right. I was okay. Uh, that in this America we are equal under the law, mm-hmm. equal justice, equal opportunity. We haven't made good on those promises for yeah. everybody. Now it's interesting you, you say but, in your civics class because you didn't get that at home. It feels like oh, I got that in a public school. You got that in a public school. Yes, we don't have them anymore. Yeah, it probably was one of the first things to go, and it couldn't have been Democrats that yeah. pulled back on. Uh, yeah, on well, such those were the days when patriotism didn't seem like a partisan issue. No, on December seventh, nineteen forty-one. We were. Re- I was at Emerson College my first semester. Sure. We're, we're, we were rehearsing a play on uh, 130 Beacon Street on the Charles River. 
I love and, how you remember all these details from so long you. ago. That's well, I, I wrote, I wrote to the, me. I wrote my book oh, okay, yes, in the last still, couple of years. That you have instant recall of these details are amazing it's, to me. Yeah, I, I surprised myself. I Somebody, can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. I'm serious. <laughs> okay, uh, so it's December 7th, 1941. Somebody came running down the stairs to say they had just bombed Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. Two days later, we were at war. And not a lot of people even knew what Pearl Harbor was at that time. I don't think and, I knew it. Yeah. I mean, I learned everything I needed to know in 30 yeah. minutes. I, all, I think a joke at the time was, what did they do to Pearl Bailey? What happened? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. There's it was anything but a joke. There's cooking for you, everybody. A little old school. But, but it, it was, uh, you know, in my lifetime, that was the war where there was no doubt mm-hmm. who were the good guys. Right. Who um, were the bad guys? Good and evil were clearly marked. Clearly, clearly. Mm-hmm. And uh, Did you volunteer I, for the war? Or I you? did. Uh-huh. You, were, you didn't have to go if you were in college, but okay. I wanted to go. My mother begged me not to. She said she'd die. Wow. I said, that's what's supposed to happen to us in the Army, not you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, How did your dad feel about so it? So maybe six months or so or eight months uh I listened to her mm-hmm. begging me not to, and then I couldn't bear it anymore. And I enlisted, mm-hmm. and I flew. I was with the 15th Air Force out of Foggia, Italy. I dropped bombs 35 times, mm-hmm. flew 52 missions. I'm an American, so I always use the larger figure. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in missions, 52. Yes, of course. Now, what does that do for a 20-year-old? I mean, today's – it'd be – it's so hard to imagine, especially in those days. It seems like, I don't know, I'm making this up. I could be wrong. But there, there's a part of me that feels like a lot of people were sheltered in those days. But then because of the Depression, there was a lot of growing up that people did in those days that they don't do these days. I think there's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of awareness that young people have these days in terms of the culture and that sort of thing because of the way we get information. But I think there was a lot of hard living that people did in your day that made people grow up in a different way. Mm-hmm. How fast do you grow up, though, when you go to Italy and you're dropping bombs at 20 years old? Larry, based on a very recent experience, mm-hmm. I was um, in Italy with my wife uh, within the last year. We were very friendly with the with John Emerson and Kimberly, his wife, who were the um, uh, ambassadors uh, in Berlin. Mm-hmm. And we had a few extra days. We called. They said, oh, please come. We went. My wife and I were in the air flying to Berlin. I had done this once before. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, two years ago, I don't know how the this part of the Air Force learned that the last mission or one of the last missions I flew was the longest mission in the European theater wow. from Foggia, Italy to Berlin mm-hmm. to Berlin. And what kind of plane was that? And a B-17. B-17. And they had found a uh, Tuskegee Airman. Yes. His name was Roscoe Brown. uh, That's a great name. And he had flown that mission with me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So he had flown uh, in a P-51. They were protecting us, Mm -hmm. the Tuskegee guys. They found him and me, and we led the Veterans Day Parade oh, two man. years ago. That's fantastic. It, it was fabulous. It was fabulous. Uh, so we're flying, my wife and I, to Berlin, and I'm remembering mm-hmm. all of this and remembering 
as the I was the radio operator. I had the top gun, and I was the radio operator. Right. So I was I was closest to the Bombay doors. So I had to kind of get up a little bit out of my seat mm-hmm. and look over. I was the one who saw the bombs leave the Bombay. Right. When the last bomb left, I could notify the pilot so that he could close the doors. Right. So that was my job the 35 times we dropped bombs. So I was the guy who could see our drums, bombs leave the plane. Right. Then a moment later, gather with the bombs from all the other planes around us, and mm-hmm. I'd watch hundreds of bombs falling. <laughs> and I'd think, uh, all of them, do. one misses the target and hits yeah. a farmhouse. Right. I even imagined a family sitting around a table. Yeah. And I remember thinking my teeth grit when I say it the way I felt it then. Fuck them. Yeah. I didn't care if it hit a farmhouse. But I don't know whether it's going home the first time this happened or, mm-hmm. or, if, uh, or, or weeks later, but at some point I imagined somebody coming to me with a pencil and paper and saying, Mr. Lee, if you sign this, you will forever mean you don't give a damn Hmm. If it hits a farmhouse. And I know to my toes I would not sign that. I would not sign that, even though this took place at a time when there are fighters all over the place trying to get to us and and flack from down below. I would not sign that. Hmm. I believe that right now. But the fact of my existence is that I've not been tested. Mm-hmm. Thank God I was never tested. Yeah. That suggests to me that I reach to understand the commonality of the human experience. Yeah. You seem to have a, a specific moral compass very early on um, from how you talk. And, and it feels like that moral compass is what you brought onto television for us. How hard was it in the first show in All in the Family of – of doing that. I mean, I've done shows before and there's always obstacles to getting any show on the air. Yeah. I always say shows are successful in spite of what the network does, not because of, not slamming the networks, but you know, as a writer, no, creator, it's most, very difficult of, to, to have a pure vision. Right. Not saying All in the Family was a pure vision because it was based on something, but it certainly was bold for its time and unheard of. I mean, the Smothers Brothers had just been kicked off. Well, at that time, they uh-huh. weren't kicked off yet, but they were about to be kicked off just for doing their skits about about uh, Vietnam and that sort of thing. So what what were the big obstacles to getting that content on the air at first? Well, starting with the language, yeah. but you know, I I had told them it doesn't if, if Archie can't be Archie, there's no point in having a conversation. Yeah. I have to tell you what the storyline was. Okay. It was a short storyline that was they were celebrating it was their twenty fifth wedding anniversary. Mm-hmm. It was a Sunday they were in church. Mike and Gloria were preparing a surprise brunch yeah. with balloons and so forth. And uh, they finished early, the the brunch, and Michael realized they had the place alone, which didn't have, uh, and he got Gloria to go upstairs. <laughs> right, right. They were no sooner upstairs, closed the bedroom door, when the front door opened. Yeah. Archie and Edith come in. He hated the minister. He hated the yes. ceremony. That's great. That's awesome. And uh, they hear the door, uh, the front door close, and they come running down the stairs. Mm-hmm. Archie assesses the moment, and mm-hmm. he says, 11.30 of a Sunday morning. 
That line had to come out. No way. Yes. No way. Why did that line have to come out? Well, because it puts a picture in the audience's mind. Wow. Well, but they run upstairs and they're going to, you know what they're going to do when they go upstairs. Yeah. And and they're married. Yes. Yeah. uh, And you don't see it. But when he says 1130, it makes it specific of a Sunday morning. It makes it specific and so on. Now- I love we that you were, can we, hate Jews, blacks, Puerto Ricans, but people can't have sex at 11.30 on Sunday morning. We were working on the fifth or sixth or whatever episode, uh-huh. writers, that is, and uh, the day the show was to air, uh-huh. and uh, I heard that they were taking the line out in New York three hours earlier than it was to play in L.A. Wow. And my, I had said to them, take that line out, and I won't be here tomorrow morning. And you didn't have much leverage at that time. The show wasn't a hit yet, right? Oh, no, no it hadn't been on. This, right. is, this is the first episode. Right. It's about to go on in New York. No, you had the courage of your convictions. And, yeah. and they, I, I heard like 20 minutes before it was going to go on in New York, three hours and 20 minutes earlier here, yeah. that uh, the line would be in. They uh-huh. weren't taking it out. Wow. It's still a funny line. So it's, <laughs> yes, and yeah. it, it went, and uh, no state seceded from the Union. Wow, yeah. <laughs> the world kept turning. You know, the world kept turning. What was interesting about Archie, now, that show really hit, I think, me and my brother at the time, in right in the middle. You have one, one brother? Yeah. Oh, no, I have two brothers. Uh, but my my the middle brother Mark, we were very close in age, and uh-huh. we used to make each other laugh when we go to sleep and that type of stuff. We used to do impressions. In fact, Archie and Edith were some of our earliest impressions. Yes, that we would do. Oh, geez, Edith, get away from me, you! And we would always do that. <laughs> oh, oh, Archie. So, yeah, oh, that's a good stuff. Edith. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but uh, she, our old Sal ran great. Knows what it did. Um. But it always was interesting to me, especially, you know, as a young black kid, that Archie was lovable. Like, I find that a subversive moment on television, that a Uh bigot is lovable. I would assume that you got both people that loved him for the wrong reasons and people that maybe liked him for... No, you're quite right. Different reasons. But, but, and this is... The heart of America. Yeah. I'm about this. The heart of the American, as the American is. Mm-hmm. I never got a letter from anybody who was feeling and thinking right on Archie. Really? That didn't suggest I was some kind of a son of a bitch. Every single letter that that uh-huh. that, that said right on Archie, or asked me to go back where I came from, you Jew bastard. Right. Because they felt Archie was a real person, actually. and <laughs> Because they understood. Yes. Because in their gut, they understood. Didn't change them. I'm yes. not saying we made new people of them. Right. Uh, but but they, they knew. They understood. Yeah. Did you feel like there were any issues that were too much for that show that you thought, mm, I don't know if we could do that, or was it the opposite? I... Never wished to do, uh, uh, you know, work on a subject that I'm racking my brain now uh, that I thought we shouldn't do or or there was some reason why we couldn't do or 
seems to me everything we wanted to do, we were able to do, were ultimately. You, were you surprised when the show became a hit? The surprise came in the kind of a hit it was. You know, I, I get that. I'm surprised every day mm-hmm. because uh, I wrote a book recently, because there was a documentary. Uh, there is a documentary that's out, Just Another Version of You. Yes. Uh, people talk to me all the time about it. And I hear the things I used to hear then uh-huh. differently. I'm older, smarter, uh-huh. been through more. So when uh, a black man your age right. uh, tells me that he watched the show with his family. Yes. When Russell Simmons told me that he saw George Jefferson write a check. Uh-huh. He was 10 years old or so. Yeah. He had never seen a black man write a check. Yeah. He didn't know a black man could write a check. Sure. He saw it on the Jeffersons. And it was a significant gift to him. Well, there were so many, I'll still use the word subversive moments, I call it, because I had never seen it on TV. Not only seen it on TV, it wasn't allowed to happen in the culture, Norman. You had George Jefferson who talked back to a white man constantly, mm-hmm. and this white man represented the worst of America in that sense. I mean, that was liberating for me as a child to see him put Archie mm-hmm. in his place. Um, were you aware of of how of how important that was at that time you were doing it or were you just in the middle of it, just like any showrunner just doing No, I was, uh, you'll understand this. I mean, I was, you know, I was doing well, working my ass off to yeah. make a living for a growing family. Weeds, yeah. I mean, that's what it was all about. Right, I, happened to be, checks, yeah. I happened to be a serious man. Yeah. And I also learned that people laugh harder when they're caring more. Yeah. If you have them in a situation where they are really involved yes. and, the, and, and a laugh comes it's huge it's yeah. big and that the, the rocking movement of a large audience as it mo- steps yeah. out of it and moves forward yes. and comes it's, back it's is as spiritual as anything really i've ever is. seen in a church yeah and it's I, I think it doubles when it is about something um i mean it's great to make an audience laugh for anything it really is laughter yeah. is great but when you know there's something else going on there that there's really some meat that you can't wait for them to chew up and and have a good meal <laughs> it feels so great you know to hear that laughter what was the worst moment you can remember for you as a black kid oh god just from being black the worst moment for me and i i've talked about this in talks before my brother and i we were very young at the time i couldn't have been more than seven or eight i think and it didn't dawn on me at the time how bad it was but i know it affected me some we heard police uh banging on the house next door on the door and my brother and i we kind of rushed to the window and uh the police officer said i'm not making this up he said freeze nigga dead like freeze nigga dead you know, and uh, my brother and I, being the the minds that we have, we made fun of that for years. We made jokes about it, right? But we kept making jokes about it, Norman. We we could never let that go. And I thought about that years later. Why mm-hmm. I couldn't leave, let that go, you know? And even in my work today, that phrase still haunts me. You know? Nigger dead. Well, this is a person in authority who immediately dehumanizes an entire group of people mm-hmm. and the word nigga and dead are back to back, you know, and that sent a message to me, like even at that young age, that it. this is just a different world for you. It's just different. 
you know, and you just better be, you just better be careful. Mm-hmm. And that affected me like, and it's funny because I still remember viscerally, like even how it felt, how it hit me, you know. And uh, like even today, if I joke about things like race or talk about police brutality or that type of thing, and my father was in law enforcement, you know, I had appreciation for how bad it was. But I also knew what abuse felt like, you know, mm-hmm. and, and institutional abuse and what that was. So I would say that sticks out still the most to me to this day. So, you know, for me, when I saw reflected on television, you know, like when I saw Fred Sanford for the first time in Sanford and Son, you know, here was a guy who said a lot of things that we were thinking like, oh, man, that there's nothing ugly than an old white lady. <laughs> like he would say that. I mean, it was, it was like, I can't believe he would say something like that. It was so stupid, you know, but it was But, so but he, yeah. he, I often th- I have thought and said, he could walk into a room and yes. tell you your mother was in car yes. that was, you know, went up in a fire or whatever yes. that, he could say the worst thing and make you laugh. Well, his earlobes were funny, his knuckles were funny, yes. His, yes. he was funny. That was the genius of Red Fox. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and that show broke a lot of ground for me, too. A lot of people, though, compared Fred Sanford to Archie Bunker. I didn't think that was a fair comparison. No comparison. Yeah, no, because, different. yeah, absolutely. Fred Sanford's, if you could call it bigotry, <laughs> was completely rooted in a system that made him a junk man in the first place, uh-huh. you know, where <laughs> Archie's, Archie felt he had a great life and had a life of privilege and everything. He never viewed his circumstance you know, as less than, unless he was being compared to a minority that had it better than him. Yeah, or you know? yeah, unless yes. there was something that yes. wasn't, you know, from the past. Yes. When the, uh, the, the and even then the minority moving in next door. Yeah. Was the future he didn't understand. He couldn't stand he couldn't it that George it. owned his job, you know, and all <laughs> yeah. those types of things. Couldn't take it, you know. Um, and it's funny, uh, uh, Mod was a show that I, I thought was uh, very interesting too, because uh, feminism was something that splashed on television in the seventies mm-hmm. in a way that had never been on TV. You talked about it once in an interview. I saw where you, you said one of the reasons why you wanted to write these shows because the biggest problem a woman would have was burning the roast. Right? Yeah, the boss is coming to dinner and the roast is burned. Yes, yeah, yes I mean, yeah. can you imagine that? That's the complication, and yet you had an episode dealing with abortion. Mm-hmm. Um. How how did you decide to do that? Or I don't know if you were involved in the writing of that particular episode, but do you well, remember you know, we, how that we, came about? We uh, it was written, or the idea came up on one day at a time, uh-huh. uh, where Bonnie Franklin was raped or threatened with rape. However, we turned the script out. Yeah, this indicates exactly how we were working in those days. Right. It was originally an idea for on one day at a time. The writers on one day at a time. And we hadn't really written the script, but we were talking about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then somebody in the uh, uh, the All in the Family meetings, a writer, mm-hmm. uh, talked about this woman in her 70s who had just been raped. Wow. And we all sat there and said, you know, or I sat there because I was on the one on both shows. Mm-hmm. And so how much more interesting is to do it with an older woman, who, not Bonnie Franklin, but with Edith Bunker, yeah. who wasn't in her 70s, but right. uh, in her 60s. And, and so we did it. Yeah. 
And uh, I remember that. I'd never seen anything like that on television. In fact, I don't think a network would do that today on television. I wonder. I think you're probably on a Netflix not, or a Hulu. Or, yes, but not on network television. Yeah, no. You you were on CBS. Yeah. You were on the Tiffany Network. <laughs> you the know. Tiffany Network. Yeah. yeah, they wouldn't let Stephen Colbert bleep a joke. <laughs> you know, he's under FCC investigation for a bleep joke from mm -hmm. last week. Those were the days. <laughs> <laughs> so, and the... Uh, but I don't... Here's the other thing. To have... You say you're a serious man, you know, those serious subjects. How did you have the confidence to know you can be entertaining with those subjects and and have... Uh, and have people know that because I was, uh, I was a great student. Mm -hmm. I didn't know this at the time, but I was a great student of burlesque. Oh, really? At Emerson College mm -hmm. in Boston, when there was a Scully Square, which uh -huh. is a downtown square, there was a theater there called the Old Howard. Yeah, and it was the most. It was the preeminent burlesque theater in America, mm -hmm. uh, I believe. I used to go every single Saturday, and I would watch the straight men and the uh, comics uh -huh. and learn so much from what they were teaching us. And as a matter of fact, I've often thought, if you look at our culture, uh -huh. the, the straight man was always somebody to think of Abbott and Costello who, who knew everything. Right. And he was positive about everything. Yep. And he had the comic bumping into walls. Yes, with his advice, you know, the comic was smashing himself into walls while the while the straight yeah. man had everything. Carl Reiner, by the way, one of the best and funniest straight men ever. Mm. Yes, yeah. Was, yeah, I saw him just a few days yeah. ago. Uh, I think of t of our uh, culture today mm -hmm. as leadership is the straight man, and we the people are the comics uh -huh. and the straight men are full of shit and they're giving us the wrong advice and they're taking us in the wrong division and they want everything for themselves and they have us bumping into walls. Uh -huh. Perfect metaphor in my view. Perfect right. metaphor. Do you see Trump as Archie Bunker today? This lovable bigot? Well, I don't happen to see anything lovable about I know, Donald but Trump. he became so, president. So, a lot so of, like a lot of people, when I mean lovable... It feels like a lot of people excuse the things that would get any other president kicked out of office. You know, the casual lying, like not even good lying, <laughs> the casual lying yeah. about about if the sky is blue type of lying. Here's the way I in this conversation I am matching Trump and and uh, and Archie. Mm -hmm. Archie had a relationship with his daughter. Mm -hmm. One of the greatest scenes in the history of that show was when she lost a baby. Yeah. And he came into the bedroom. I remember that. Talk to her. Mm -hmm. But in the worst of the, the most severe of arguments, there was no doubt about his love for that little girl. Yeah. And uh, it, it made, he made that clear just in every way, every attitude of his body. Mm -hmm. Then I match that or I think of that with the moment uh, which I could never forget of Ivanka and Donald Trump on a couch talking to a television host. Mm -hmm. The host asks Ms. I, uh, Trump, Ivanka, uh, what, what, do you th what do you you and your dad have most in common? Right. She thought for a moment, she said. Either real estate or golf. Donald, with your daughter? 
Well, I was going to say sex, but I can't relate that. And that was the first thing out of his mouth. And yeah. that, you know, that moment I could never forget. Yeah, he even said, look, if she wasn't my daughter, hey, you know, I'm, I might. Yes, uh, in another conversation, there, yeah. was, there, there was that. So, I don't know, Archie and Edith, he seemed so sure of himself yeah. and, you know, on top of the, the family. Yes. But she was the strength. Yes. And uh, we, we, we dealt with that in a two-part episode where she lost her faith in God because mm. somebody was killed and she couldn't imagine a God that would see that happen. Right. And then we couldn't figure out how she regained her strength. It took weeks and weeks of thinking about it until finally somebody said, well, wait a minute, when she lost her faith, what happened to Archie? And mm. we all realized to a person, if she, if she lost her strength and her, her faith, therefore her faith, yeah. her strength, Archie would fall to pieces. Yeah. That's how she regained it. And it's interesting that when she did go, when she did leave the show, it just wasn't quite the same without, uh, well, without not only the character Edith, but the actress Jean Stapleton, who is underrated, I think, in terms of the powerhouses of American television comedy. Like you hear a lot of the names spoken, rightly so, the Carol Burnett's, the Mm -hmm. Lucille Balls, but you rarely hear, you know, Jean Stapleton as someone who was not only influential at the time, but was a powerhouse actor and, powerhouse. and, and comedian. And her timing was impeccable. Um, it's funny, you know, dealing with agnosticism and atheism also. Did you develop a show called Religion or something like that during that a time? A film. A film called Religion. A film. Okay, tell me about that. What was that? Well, it, it, didn't ha- it hasn't happened yet. Oh, okay. But would you believe you're asking me a question? I pulled out three boxes. Uh-huh. I had them bring from storage at yeah. Beacons. They brought me three boxes uh-huh. of notes and scripts and, and, and so forth on, a, on the subject called religion. Yes. Because I, I've ached to yeah. make this film, mm-hmm. and we never got the script right. What do you think is uh, our issue today? What, if you were just starting fresh, and wanted to put a show on television, and you wanted there was an issue that you felt had to be on television today. What needs to be there that isn't there? Is there anything? What What is the important issue today? I don't know that I can narrow it to an issue, uh-huh. but understanding our common humanity. Uh-huh. You know, we're sitting here, a white man, a black man. <laughs> yeah. The white man is a Jew, so he's. Uh, in a lot of eyes, not as worthy as a white man who wasn't. Wow. And certainly the black man isn't as worthy as the white man yeah. in uh, much of the culture. And we have not learned yet uh, who we are in terms of our common humanity. Mm-hmm. That's why the story I told you about, the, you know, watching bombs fall yeah. and not giving a shit mm-hmm. uh, until... Yeah, at the at the moment that that I could have so many times not given a damn at such a moment is unthinkable. Yeah, but it helps me understand that I have to try to understand the next guy. Yeah, you know this will help people understand more what I'm talking about. I thought I have thought from the day I had my first child, uh-huh. if somebody seriously harmed this child. I could drive the hours it yeah. might take me to find the son of a bitch and kill him in front of his family. I can relate to that. But I don't want to be that person. Yeah. Uh, 
and thank heaven again. I've not been tested. Don't ever wish to be tested. But it helps me to have grown old enough or been through enough to, to get that message, to yeah. he, hear that these feelings can exist in me for only an instant. I have to struggle to understand the other guy better. Mm-hmm. Are you 95? I'll be 95 in July. At 95, do you, Norman Lear, do you have hope? Oh, I don't want to wake up the morning. I don't have hope. Mm-hmm. Do not wish to wake up the morning. I'm without hope. Mm-hmm. No, I go to bed uh, thinking of the taste of coffee the next morning, the look of the mm-hmm. times when I wake. You know, I love coffee in the paper. And you? Always. Um, hope and gratitude. I try to have gratitude kind of lead the way. You know, you know whenever, whenever I get lost or whenever, you know, I'm having whatever those feelings are, gratitude is what pulls me out of it. Great theologian, Martin Marty at the mm-hmm. University of Chicago. Great friend and mm-hmm. great theologian. Uh, we were walking in Vermont and just, just the two of us through the woods. And I said, Marty, give me the shortest. <laughs> He's written 70 books. I don't sure. know. Give me the shortest the the uh, shortest description or the shortest for worship. What's the sh- he said one word, Norman? Gratitude. There you go. Well, I am very grateful that you have decided to sit here with me for this time. It's been such a pleasure. I mean, I could talk to you for hours, and w- and we will do it again because I Absolutely. too am have a podcast. Did yes. you know that? I can't wait to be. And what, what's the name of your podcast? The, uh, all of the above. All of the above, ladies with, and gentlemen. With Norman Lear. With Norman Lear. Norman's been a pleasure. Please do religion. Please do that movie. I, um, as recently as a few <laughs> hours ago, yeah. was looking at some materials from way, way back. Great. Well, I can't wait to see. Can't wait to see all your next projects. Norman Lear, everybody. Uh, everybody. Larry Wilmore. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to you next time. Bye.